Welcome to this week's episode of the His Hill Podcast. My name is Kelly Doherty, and I'm your host. In today's episode, our camp director, Connor Patterson, will be leading a devotion from church history. But before he does, I just want to take a moment and thank you as listeners for the encouragement that you've been giving with regards to this podcast. There's been a number of you who have written, others who live in the local area who come up to me, and also those that I I meet when I'm traveling. All of you have let me know that you listen to the podcast and that it's been an encouragement to you. I want you all to know that it's been exciting to see and hear how the Lord is using the podcast in your lives and that it's been reminding you of Jesus and pointing you to him. And so I ask that you keep praying for us as we continue to trust the Lord with this podcast. While I'm asking you to pray, I also want to ask that you remember our students who are finishing up their school year with just a week and a half to go. As Charlie mentioned in last week's episode, it's been a really good year, and we thank God for these students, their hearts, and for what he will continue to do with them in Christ. Now, many of you who listen to the podcast are alumni, and So you know the obstacles that they will be facing when they return home. Maybe you could pray specifically for them with that in mind. I also want to ask that you be praying for Connor and Kevin, our camp director and assistant camp director, as they lead us into the camps uh, of the summer camp season and that the summer staff training will go well and that they will be as a staff fixed on Christ as they lead these kids this summer. Now, as I mentioned, Connor is going to lead us in a devotion from church history. This will be the fourth devotion he's led from history, and if you haven't listened to the first three, I encourage you to go back and do so. Today, he'll be looking at Constantine, who is an interesting character in history. It was through Constantine that the Lord brought about some big changes for the church. The man himself is a little bit of a question mark, though. Was he a Christian? Some say yes and some say no. Though there are people on both sides of the aisle with this, most of us can agree that the Lord used him for good. So one thing I've come to when looking at Constantine is that the Lord is not confined to using the quote-unquote perfect man. Praise God. For if he was looking for the perfect man, then none of us would be used. Paul made it clear with his own life when he said in Romans seven eighteen, for I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For the wishing is present, but the doing of the good is not. And then on in verse 24, in the first part of 25, he says, wretched man that I am. Who will set me free from the bondage of this death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's incredible encouragement, isn't it? That the man who said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, the man who said, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain, the man who said, I've been crucified with Christ, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, went on to tell us, I fight every day. Isn't that incredible? Isn't that encouraging to know that Christ doesn't need the perfect man because he is the perfect man? Well, that's enough of me talking. So without any further ado, 
Here's Connor. Welcome back to the mini series on church history that if you've been following us on, we're, we're in part four here. Uh, just a, a real joy to be able to continue to be invited out and just share my excitement, my love, my my passion uh, for church history, and just really, as Kelly and I were just talking, the the faithfulness of Jesus to his bride and how just zealous he is for his bride to be purified and for his people to be walking in the light as as he is in the light, and how he uses corrupted, messed up things that are meant for evil, as only God can do, turn that in his hands as he sees it, as he knows all things, he's able to use and work all things according to his purposes and according to his plans. And we're just so thankful to be a part of that in history. And we just recognize that um, history is really just the people that have gone before us and we can glean much from those who have gone before us. Um, one of the people that I'm just really excited, I've always been excited to to open up and learn more about and share with the students and, and excited really to share with you guys is an individual and his actions today that in my mind, if I can be so bold as to say, is one of the greatest turning points in, in church history. I I might well go there, apart from the work of Jesus and the apostles and in the book of Acts, but you know, post-biblically, someone whose actions have lingered and lasted and affected the church and affected nations, it's, a, it's affected worldviews, it's affected civilization, is uh, is the individual that we're going to talk about. Uh, he's a, He was a Roman emperor, and in my mind, just a brilliant emperor and one of the most renowned emperors, both politically, militarily, relationally, and then, you know, quote-unquote, religiously. He's an individual born after the fall of man, so there's good, there's bad, and then there's ugly. And uh, so I just wanted to get into that with you guys. This man, if you haven't guessed it already, or um, if you're not familiar with this uh, portion of, of history, this man's name is Emperor Constantine. And I want to just kind of work through his life in those four major categories, uh, militarily, politically, relationally, and then how that all has been just affecting the church. All of it has a part to play in in what God's business is here in this world. But I uh, just want to just really start with those things. Um, we know Constantine from the, from the get go, not necessarily because of who he is, but more so of his father. His, his father was one of the generals of the Roman army. He was, um, given this privilege and this position of power when the Roman empire was divided into two right down the middle. There was a Western and there was an Eastern, um, emperor that was just as the, as the empire was growing so large and so big and so influential, you know, one man just could not be over it. Um, and so they divided it out into, and Constantine's father was really in working from that place in the Western part of the empire until he dies very suddenly in battle. And very quickly after he dies, his son, whose name is Constantine, and who's really over the majority of the army that is up in what we consider today Great Britain or England, takes over that position and assumes that charge there. Um, but if you know anything about Roman history and power within the Roman Empire, you don't just get to that position of, of authority easily. There usually comes with a fight, which is a little bit ironic because one of the pillars of the Roman empire was 
this phrase called the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. They're all about peace. And yet there's probably not an empire in history that has more civil wars and so more backstabbing and more killing and more just unjust death in order to, to attain to that power. And I think you can uh, insert the phrase here, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. For those of us, this side of heaven made in, made in Adam's flesh. So um, that very quickly comes about. There is a civil war that that breaks out between Constantine, who's over the army, and a man named Maxentius, who is in Rome and, and really has more of the support of the Senate. And meanwhile, in the East, there's a man, we'll get to him a little bit later, but his name is Licinius. But for now, let's just come back to Constantine and Maxentius, because there's a there's a battle that's going to happen between the two of them that really is going to set the course for the rest of Constantine's life. He, he's taking his army back down just this huge long trek from England, and he's coming back down to meet Maxentius in battle. And it's going to be decided kind of once and for all, who's going to take the Western title of Caesar here. And Maxentius has the upper hand strategically he is in Rome strategically he has the better defensive position and he doesn't have as many men on his in his army and in supporting him but he does have just the upper hand strategically in his defense but unknown really to historians and especially to military historians Maxentius decides to leave that position in Rome and march out and meet Constantine in open battle. Again, don't know why that is. Maybe he just, you know, the pride of his own flesh, you know, decides I want to beat him fair and square. And he is strategic. Maxentius is strategic. He has fewer men. And so he forces Constantine into more of a straight and it, it, the battle comes to a place called Milvian Bridge. Right now, then, it was outside the city of Rome. Now, Rome has grown so much. And um, if you go to Rome, you can visit. It's technically within the city. Now, at Milvian Bridge, it was, it was a smart, strategic place for Maxentius to be. You know, force the larger army to come down into a more narrow pathway that, you know, it, it's, it's not as much as in the field where he can be surrounded, but it has to be on the bridge. Unfortunately for Maxentius, when right kind of when the battle begins and very quickly on in the battle, he is knocked off of his horse into the river and he drowns. And very quickly his army dissipates. And they leave the battle and very quickly Constantine is crowned the emperor. Now, if that was, you know, just the end of the battle, fate you know, what we could call, what we would call it, you know, won the day. But I'd like to take a moment to back up a day before the battle, I mean, a couple of days before the battle. This isn't just any battle that Constantine walks into. This, he believed, was a divine moment in his life. Constantine's father was, was a, a you know, deist. He believed in gods. You know, he believed in the Christian God. He believed in the Roman gods. He believed in just pretty much anything that was a god he believed in. And so Constantine was raised with the knowledge of the many different worldviews and religions um, in, within the Roman Empire. But neither of them were expressly Christians. A couple of days before the battle, there was this vision that Constantine records in the middle of the day. There was a vision 
in which he saw in the sky this symbol called the Cairo symbol. And it looks basically like a P with an X through the vertical part of the bottom part of the P. And with that symbol, believed that he heard divinely out of heaven a voice saying, by this you shall conquer. And he calls this moment in his life basically his conversion to Christianity, that he believes that God is giving him divine superiority, divine victory here over Maxentius in this battle for him to be the one who's going to march into Rome um, undefeated here. And so he quickly, after this vision, believes that this is Jesus. This is the God of the Bible who is speaking, the God of the Christians who is who is speaking to them. And he puts that Cairo symbol pretty much on anything he possibly can. Shields, helmets, um, you know, if you could stitch it onto their um, clothing, they would, right? Anything that could possibly, you know, remind them the victory is ours by this symbol, you know, you shall conquer. And so when Maxentius falls in the river and drowns very quickly, I mean, this is not a surprise to Constantine. I mean, he knew this from the very beginning. He was, he was adamant about this. This was God's victory at, at hand. And so he marches right into Rome with this air of superiority that he has divine blessing from God to be the emperor of Rome. He's going to call himself upon that arrival upon that coronation of, you know, the Caesar there in the West, that he is the first Christian to occupy such a position as this. So this event in history, the Battle of Milvian Bridge, the Cairo symbol, by this you shall conquer, this was the turning point in Constantine's life, is what he would say. And this following, I'm going to, I'm going to put that in quotes, you know, following of Jesus, and the God of the Bible, and being a Christian. He marches into Rome. He's the co-emperor of the western half of, of the empire, like I said earlier, and he shares that for a, a number of different years, about 20 years, with a man named Licinius. So he defeats Maxentius. That's the first guy, 312. And then, ultimately, power corrupts. There cannot be two emperors. That has never worked in history from this point. And that will never work in history from this point on. And sure enough, the peace of Rome, the Pax Romana breaks down. And between uh, Constantine and Licinius, they duke it out in 324. So, you know, about 12 years later there, um, Constantine marches into Rome and he is crowned the sole Roman emperor, Caesar Augustus of the Roman Empire. And he unites the empire back under one name and under one leader. So he'll be... Uh, He'll be an emperor from 324 to 337, about 13 years there that he rules. Uh, you know, he he conquers, he defeats two men, you know, the, the power is his, and both of these, you know, he would credit to the God of Christianity. He would credit to Jesus as as making him the one who is faithful, faithfully the, the victor here. Now, what does someone do with power to question I think we've we've we can ask you you know we can see it in the we can see it in history we can see it in secular history we can see it in church history we can see it within the church what does someone do when they receive a position of power it really says a lot about their character right how they use that um, superiority or I don't like the worst period but how they use that position you know it can either bring someone to corruption or as first Peter 5 says that it's going to 
really remind us that we are under the chief shepherd. And so we are to serve one another voluntarily, you know, not out of a uh, sordid game, not out of, you know, just our own desires to be satisfied, our own flesh, right? How we lead people says a lot about our, our character, uh, both spiritually and, and, and physically. Those, those two things go hand in hand. So I want to look at some of the decisions that he's made throughout history that we know just objectively in history and, and what and how that shaped the church, how that shaped, again, Western civilization. So moving on from militarily, I want to just get into the the political spectrum of him. A couple different, there's just two things that really stand out in his rule as emperor. In 13 years, he accomplishes two things that are really incredible from an objective point of view. And the first one is called the Nova Roma in 330. So seven years before he passes away, he's going to do something in the Roman empire that was unheard of. And he takes the capital of Rome and he strips it of that title. And he moves his capital, the Roman capital from Rome to a small little town named in, in Europe that, that connects Europe and Asia minor uh, at that time known as Byzantium, which very quickly after he will rename to who else after himself. And he names it what we know it to be in history, Constantinople. And if you're a student of history or a student of geography, then you will know that that city today is called Istanbul in the heart of Turkey there. The city itself, Constantinople or, or Byzantium then, was absolutely ideal. Trade is moving through the city rapidly. The empire is naturally advancing further east than it is west. Rome has conquered Gaul in the west. They are pretty much done with England. They're just they they ran into the Celts and the barbaric people of Scotland and they're like we're just so done with these guys. Uh, they didn't know what to do in the highlands there. So they just built a wall, Hadrian's wall. And was like, Hey, uh, don't come over the wall and, and we won't come any further deal. And then they left. And then, you know, over in Germany, again, guerrilla warfare, barbaric German people. And there's like, you know, there's really no fruit of conquering any further here. It's just constant, uh, civil war. People keep, you know, we conquer a tribe and then they just revolt there. There's no fruit in this. And so they kind of withdraw and there's nothing really they want more in Europe. So they pushed further East and that's where the trade, that's where the commerce was, right? That's where the life was really beginning to happen. The civilization was moving that direction to Asia Minor. And I think Constantine sees this very quickly and in his power hops on board with this and acts swiftly, uproots his capital in Rome in the West and moves it East and places it right smack dab in the middle of pretty much everything that's going to be going on in the next century, pretty much. And after that, in uh, Constantinople there in Turkey. And this was not just a, a smart move, you know, in commerce and in trade, but this is actually a brilliant move just as a leader here. What, he, what, what this really does for him, this, this really establishes, this is a power move. You know, essentially it's saying, hey guys, there's a new sheriff in town and he's come to do business. You know, we're not messing around any longer. We're not playing the old games. We're not getting stuck in this just kind of circular, vicious cycle of backstabbing, betrayal. Like, we're moving forward. We're moving onward and upward here. He's really restarting the Roman Empire. You know, and if you 
read 2 Samuel, David is crowned finally king, right? King David, 2 Samuel chapter 5 is what we've been waiting for since basically 1 Samuel chapter 16. And one of the first things David does when he is king, taking over that position of power from Saul, is that he relocates the capital to what we would call the city of David, which is Jerusalem. You know, and we can often just read over that because we've always known Jerusalem to be the capital, right? We, we read it and it's, it's nothing really new to us. But that would have been David, in a sense, restarting this whole kingship idea. Hey, we started with Saul. It didn't go well. Obviously, we know it's, it's been led to a lot of darkness after the time of the judges. We need a fresh new start with a king after God's own heart. We're going to change it up here and we're going to move it down to here in Jerusalem. And it was a huge move of power that God blessed and, and it still is, you know, to this day. So Constantine is doing the same thing, restarting the Roman Empire, moving it into Constantinople. In doing so, what about Rome? What happens there? Was it just left desolate? Did they all move? No, Rome still has quite a position of power. And maybe one day on the podcast, we'll just go through why, why is Rome throughout the ages so important? What's the big deal about Rome? Um, and for Constantine, it was, it was not just some city. I mean, it wasn't just the namesake of the Roman Empire. This, this was a place of influence. It had the largest church, from what we know of it, the most amount of people that were going to it. It's one of the books in our Bibles that you know, is named after the letter that's gone to Romans. So in Rome, he leaves behind a figurehead, a symbol of authority over the western half of the empire. It's not named Caesar. He doesn't give it some special name, Prince. He just has that person really as just a political and we know to be spiritual figurehead, and that is the, the Bishop of Rome. From that point on, when, when Constantine moves capitals, the Bishop of Rome takes on the position of quote-unquote authority without any real power, but he has that view in the Roman culture that he's the representation of the emperor in the West. But it's not just spiritually, it's also politically here. And uh as we say, as we track history, as we track what we call Roman Catholicism, that's a huge moment for Roman Catholicism to see that that bishop of that city was granted that much power and that much position. So that's the first thing. That's in 330, Nova Roma. He changed the capital after his own name, Constantinople. The second is something that more directly affects us as a church and you know, even just as a Western civilization today. And that's in 313. So to take us a little bit of a step backward before the Nova Roma, um, he, when he's the co-emperor with Licinius, does something that's unprecedented in history. And he creates what's called the Edict of Milan, which is an authoritative document that gives, it really allowed two things to happen. The first one was that it gave freedom to all religions to be worshipped in the Roman Empire, but specifically there was restitution to be given to the Christians for the hundreds of years, for 300 plus years of intense and brutal persecutions that they faced. 
obviously two major factors going on in that. The first and obvious one to us as Christians is that there was restitution made. You know, all of a sudden now Constantine brings Christianity out of the catacombs, out of hiding, you know, out of a fear of, you know, life and death every single day. He brings it straight to center stage. Not only is he the self-proclaimed first Christian emperor, but he is specifically giving restitution of really of all of the Roman Empire, of all the people who've been persecuted and hurt and been taken advantage of, Christians get the special treatment there. There's a lot then of us asked, why the Christians? Why is that such a big deal? Right? And so all of a sudden they, all the things that were taken from them, obviously not life lost, but any property loss was restored. Any fortunes lost was, re- was restored. And it was a huge show there in the, in the Roman culture that all of a sudden the people we hated, we despised is now someone that we're having to pay restitution to. That's interesting for the Roman culture there after so many years of violence and persecution. But the second factor is one that's not maybe as obvious to us in the get-go, but it's arguably more unique. And that is the freedom of religion that the Edict of Milan gave to the Roman Empire. We take that for granted because as an American, at least, that's an inalienable right. Right, that's part of our constitution. Um, that's something that we probably have all grown up with and never doubted. We never questioned that. Maybe more recently, we're beginning to see like, is, how long is that going to last? But for, I mean, really, the great since the great experiment began in 1776, that's been just a part of our founding tradition. Right, the freedom of religion there, but that was not common in history at least when you get to Constantine, that had in, you know, historically been talked about, but no one actually practiced that. No one actually believed it, uh, that it could be possible until you get the Edict of Milan. And these two men come together, spearheaded by Constantine, and basically he says that any religion or any belief cannot be and should not be forced upon the public. Right, that's what that, that's the practice was of the Romans. Right, you will believe in the Roman gods, you will believe in Roman society. You know, and they would break down different societies, starting with what they believed, starting with their deities. Right, they would crush any idea of their deities. You can you know keep having your food, you can keep speaking your language, but you will worship our gods because what you worship, you will be like. And that is what is unifying the culture. That is what's bringing oneness together, what we believe spiritually. And that was really important to keep the peace of Rome. And so that was very distinctive for for the Romans um, to, to have you worship Roman deities. But now Constantine's like, no, you, I'm, not, I'm not telling you to worship the God of the Bible. I'm not telling you to worship, you know, the God of the Roman gods or the Greek gods. I'm saying you can really worship anyone you want. And I, as an emperor, cannot force that. And I really should not uh, force that upon anyone. And so he gives freedom there. That's a very, I mean, again, we take it for granted, but, and that is just not known before this time. Where did our constitutionalists get the idea of freedom of religion? They trace it all the way back to Constantine here in the early church. And it seems that this is a, a belief that is, endorsed by Jesus, Paul, and the apostles, that you cannot, 
And you should not force someone to believe something. But we make an apologia. We make a defense. We give a reasonable, rational understanding of why Christianity seems to make sense in this world system that God has made. And it is the most rational. It is the most reasonable. It is the most, the most trustworthy. But you know, and I know, I wish there were people in my life that I could force this upon. Paul said the same thing, man, if I could make the Jews saved, I'd give up, in a sense, my salvation for it, but I simply cannot. That is not the God of the scriptures that we worship. And so we present it, we present Christ in a simple, in a pure, we pray in a unified way in the love of the Lord between one another. But ultimately, this side of heaven, there is that freedom of choice of what we will worship. And Constantine pretty much writes that in stone um, with the Edict of Milan. Again, never heard of before up to that point. That will be the precedent for a little while um, until some things change, which I'll, I'll get to in a little bit. Now, the third point here is, is relationally. What was Constantine like as a, as a man, as a, as a person? Um, we know from the last podcast, if you remember that, what was that, five, six months ago, we're on a really good, consistent track with these podcasts, keeping it fresh in your mind. We did the, um, the Nicene Creed. And if you remember the Nicene Creed, I mentioned that it was a creed and a, and a council that was not called for by people within the church. It was called for by Constantine himself. He saw the movement within the empire, the growth of Christianity in the empire, and he saw Arianism at play and how fast that was quickly taking over Christianity. There was divide, there was fractioning, there was division there. And so he calls for a council uh, to come together and really just to put an end to that fracture. Did he do that because he just simply wanted peace? Maybe. Did he do that because he, he genuinely loved you know, the Lord and the, the truth of God's word and the truth of Jesus being the word of God? Maybe. You know, did he just do that because he was unsure himself? What, what is true about Jesus? We, yeah, maybe. We, we really don't know. But we know that, that it was important to him, so important to him that he calls 300 bishops from around the Roman Empire to solve this. And he's like, basically, you're not going to leave until this is resolved. And, um, and we've grown from that as a church with the Nicene Creed that is, in some churches, still said. But we also know relationally, you know, with he has some sons. He has um, Constantine. Constantius, which is one of his sons. And then he has another son with his first wife. He ends up getting remarried to a, to a woman named Fausta. And his second son, Crispus, at one point in his life, makes a really bad decision. And he decides to sleep with his stepmother. So this is Crispus, Constantine's son having an affair with Constantine's second wife, Fausta. And that did not go well for either of them. Crispus is 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 put to death, seems to be more secretly, but but he is executed and put to death for that offense. Fausta does not get off the hook as easily. And uh, what we know in history is that she is publicly boiled alive. That's one way to go. And that would be one of the worst ways to go. Uh, that's a it's a big ouch there. And, you know, lots of question marks around that. Like, is that, you know, the heart of a king like David, you know, that says, is there anyone left in Saul's household that I may show 
kindness to. You know, is at the heart of a king after God's own heart, you know, the heart of the heart of Jesus, which sees sin for what it is, but also gives a reason a reasonable consequence for it. You know, these are questionable things. There was a questionable relation. There's many questionable relationships he held uh, very close to him. Most specifically, the bishop that baptized him on his deathbed. He was a staunch supporter of Arianism. You know, a heresy that the church condemned in Constantine's life multiple different times condemned it. And yet he still seemed to keep Arianism close to his mind and people that supported that close to him um, in his life. What does that say? about him you know was he deceived was he did not know any better were these just great friends i hope what you're hearing me say is this we really do not know constantine's heart only god does only god knows the heart of man there's some good fruit there's some messed up fruit there's some really jacked up stuff going on where is his heart we don't know we don't know here but I do want to just share with you some things that that he did apart from you know the the new Jerusalem, new Jerusalem, the uh, that's that's to come for us, the new capital there. Uh, but Constantinople and the Edict of Milan, and that's the things that he did, you know, quote unquote, religiously as that quote first Christian emperor. There were some there were some massive things that that he did, um, in that a I've already mentioned to you the proclamation of what he believes. I mean, that comes from the very top. And usually what the emperor believed, the empire would believe. There's a really close connection to that authority. And there was trust there, which opened the door for many people to ask questions about what actually is Christianity. I know we've hated it, but what actually is it? Um, he eliminates persecutions of Christians, the, the unjust killing, the bigotry against Christians and other faiths you know, that is just unjust, that that damages the heart of God, you know, that really is untrue to the author of life that, that God is. We know that he begins the design of one of the greatest um, buildings that is built in the Roman Empire that stands to this date, and that's called the Hagia Sophia. His, his son's going to complete that for him in 360. Um, but the Hagia Sophia is just one of the most beautiful buildings that was created by by Christians stands to this day in Istanbul. It's been completely taken over by um, by Islam. They did not destroy it. They kept it up. They just, as I've heard recently, they didn't whitewash the walls, but they actually just kept all the paintings that were made of Christ. Um, you know, it's called the Church of Holy Wisdom is the translation, and they will just put covers over the walls when it is time to worship. And so didn't destroy it, still there, still intact, but you'll probably never see those um, because of all the coverings that they've they've covered up. But the last thing I'll say with that, you know, what he's doing when he when he made the new capital in in um, Constantinople is that he mints new coins as well. And again, another way of just kind of reestablishing, restarting the empire. One side was just really the, the face or the image of Christ, you know, so seemed to have really been a, a strong commitment to the image of Christ, different statues, different churches built, you know, his face on the coins. Granted, on the other side of that coin, there's an image to the Roman sun god. So there's some, you know, at the same time, synchronization kind of going on, just wanting to make the masses happy, 
maybe might be an appeal, wanting to keep the peace between the old way and the new way, right, in that transition that's happening. But one of the things I wanted to say is that this man is all over the place in terms of the good, the bad, the ugly, you know, but with all of that that's happened, again, militarily, the you know, this Cairo symbol, you know, what he did in the Edict of Milan, what he did relationally, what he did for the church and the calling of the councils and everything, whatever you want to think about Constantine, you cannot say that he was not important in history, if if not one of the people that's going to springboard the churches, the church and Western civilization into what it is today. I wanted to note that Constantine is he's not saying that Christianity is the official religion of the Roman Empire. Remember, there's freedom there. But that's coming, right? This was just the setup to that. In 380, and and maybe this is what we're going to get to next uh, session that that I have on here, really looking at when Emperor Theodosius makes Christianity the statewide religion of the Roman Empire, oh man, there's a whole lot of doors that are open for good. And there are a whole lot of doors that are opened for negativity and, and issues that we still see in our, in our nation today. Um, and so, you know, that'll be exciting to, to consider thinking about that and just kind of opening that up for us. But the effects that last from Constantine today, what we do see today, you know, he closed the markets on Sundays for, for Christians to worship. So Chick-fil-A, you got Constantine to think. Hobby Lobby, Las Palapas, you go back to Constantine, right? You, you're really living in that, um, you know, sacrifice of commerce and wealth. But for really what, what we would say is taking a true day of rest and a true day of worship to enjoy the Lord. You know, we get the freedom of religion in our Western civilization and specifically the United States that we get. And with that, churches are built widely and Christ was spoken of with freedom, right? And that's a huge effect in the growth of Christianity in the early church. And then you have this beginning of, of a church-state union there. We've always known as our nation that, you know, the church and, and, this, and the state are separate, uh, but there's a lot of expression of that pairing that we still see today. You know, we're going to be having uh, our presidential elections coming up, you know, within the year. And still to this day, you're probably going to see every presidential candidate acknowledging some form of faith in the Christian religion. They want to make sure they know that Christians are being represented by their potential world leader. They still want to get that vote. You know, where where did that come from? A lot of that came from the beginnings here of Constantine, the taking of power, and then what came from that in the years to come. So the big question, was he a believer? Did he know Jesus? Was he true in his heart? Was there integrity? Was there faithfulness to the Lord? I don't know. I can't say. I'll leave that question up to you, not to answer authoritatively. You can have your opinion on it. You can say yes, and I'd say great. And you can say no, and I'd say great. And we will see when all things are revealed and all mysteries known in the light of Christ, then we will see exactly you know, the truth for, for how God has always seen it. Um, you know, one of the big questions, did 
Constantine just identify and use Christianity's growing influence as a way of bringing about peace, bringing about power in the Roman Empire? Maybe. Some say yes, great. Some say no, great. We don't know his motivation there from his heart. But we do know that he was he was brilliant. We do know that he was smart, he was educated. And we do know in goodness and in evil, God is the sovereign king, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, always working all things together for good for his bride, that we would be holy, blameless, and above reproach, presented to him on that day of glory in the fullness of his righteousness. That is what God is doing actively as he has been throughout history. So thanks for sticking with me. Thanks for learning a little bit about Constantine. Uh, I hope this excites you to maybe grab a book and uh, dig in a little bit. Some people have been asking me recently, what are some resources that you use with um, church history? Just want to throw out a couple of recommendations to you. Um, the first one I ever got, the one I still use to this day, was over 10 years ago. Kelly, sitting across from me, gave me a book by Bruce Shelley, Church History in Plain Language. I have yet to come across a book that talks about individuals and movements and events in history as clearly, as simple, and just as easy to read as Bruce Shelley does. I mean, really, he's masterful. Um, how, how he ties this together, I tell people, it reads like a novel, and then they're like, you're a nerd. And I'm like, yeah, but just read it and you'll see. Um, so that's what I recommend. Uh, Ruth Tucker has a great one. If you like biographies, just little you know, snippet biographies. She's got a book out there called Parade of Faith, and it works chronologically um, just through people. And, and he, she, she ties in a little bit of events in these little sub boxes, subcategories on different pages. But it's mainly 90% of it is just biographies of men and women throughout history and how God used them and shaped them and influenced them and the people to come. Really recommend that one. That was just fun if you like biographies. Uh, and then the one that's a little bit more academic. Uh, smaller than the rest, but one I, I, I read in, at CIU when I took my church history course, and I really liked it. It's by Mark Knoll, and has um, he was the uh, professor at Notre Dame of church history and of, of Christian church history, and he has a book out there called Turning Points, and 13 turning points he highlights from, you know, back in the beginning, pretty much at Acts to modern day, 13 t- turning points in church history that God has, you know, used and shaped to bring us to where we are today. Highly recommend that one, a little bit more academic, but um, still a very enjoyable read. And yeah, I recommend all three of those. And maybe Kelly will recommend something later on if he's got some other thoughts out there. But uh, thanks again for sticking with me. I hope you uh, continue to click on these and we continue to learn of the faithfulness of God throughout history together. Thanks. You've been listening to the His Hill podcast featuring our host, Kelly Doherty, along with our camp director, Connor Patterson, and his devotional from Church History. Thank you so much for tuning in with us this week. Remember to keep your eyes fixed on Christ. I'm Lizzie, and we'll see you next week.